at what Paul Nakasone, the new director at NSA, said in his confirmation hearings. Our adversaries don't fear us. And, and it seems like the, the trend that I observe in essentially writing a history of the last two decades of cyber operations is exactly one you describe, in which all the actors involved, but especially American adversaries, um, get more aggressive with their activities, and there's largely no response. And I think that fits into a broader trend line of increasingly aggressive behavior. Uh, and where that, where that goes is hard to say, but that trend line uh, over the last two decades is pretty unmistakable. Episode 301 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views expressed here do not reflect the opinions of our institutions, our clients, our family, our friends, our former friends, uh, or even our pets. Uh, uh, today, I'm going to be interviewing Ben Buchanan, who teaches at the George, at Georgetown University uh, about his new book, The Hacker in the State. Uh, but uh, first, let's go to the news round. Up. We've got Maury Schenk, who advises Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues, joining from our London office. Maury, good to have you. Good to be here. Uh, and we've got Gus Hurwitz back at last, uh, associate law professor and co-director of the Space Cyber and Telecom Program at the University of Nebraska. Gus, good to have you on. Always glad to be back. And, of course, uh, Nick Weaver, uh, senior researcher and lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley. Nick, uh, great to be talking to you. Always a pleasure. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur in today's program. Uh, um, one announcement before we get uh, deep into this. Uh, we're trying to decide whether to separate our interviews from our news roundups so that they can be in separate feeds and people can get them, uh, can decide to listen to one or the other uh, as opposed to having to choose to listen to them both. Uh, uh, if you've got views on this, just go to steptoe.com slash podcast poll all one word, podcast poll, uh, and vote. Uh, let us know uh, how you'd like to, uh, us to handle the interviews and whether they should be separate from the news roundup. Uh, but let's jump to our uh, main story. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, uh, Gus, uh, I, both of us, uh, all of us have, have been focusing in the last uh, week or two on Section 230 and content regulation uh, because the Justice Department uh, announced that it was really seriously considering what ought to be done about Section 230. I've written uh, uh, on this now mainly because I was trying to get my thoughts straight for attending a Justice Department workshop on the topic. And the real question is how comfortable are we giving um, uh, these large platforms the ability to determine what content is going to be uh, seen and heard on their uh, uh, platforms. Uh, and uh, right now they have an immunity for those decisions and the, those decisions are increasingly controversial. The Justice Department is paying attention to this. It plays into the encryption debate as those of us who have listened to this uh, podcast before know. Um, so I have written this stuff up for uh, uh, Lawfare um, a, and uh, uh, there have been a couple of other developments that are worth noting here. Facebook has written a roughly 20-page paper about all of the 
hard issues that have to be resolved if you want to see what kinds of uh, 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 disciplines can be imposed on uh, uh, the platform's uh, censorship of particular uh, uh, speech. Um, and I, you know, I have to say, uh, Facebook has gotten a lot of abuse for uh, uh, by ordinary people who think that they played a bad role in uh, connection with the 16 election and who think that uh, um, uh, they uh, that Facebook is too aggressive in patrolling speech. Uh, um, uh, but uh, this is a pretty good paper. Uh, it, it, it definitely worth uh, reviewing. Gus? Oh, well, I think we have uh, different views on Facebook's paper. Um, I, I agree it is substantively good, but the interesting thing about it is uh, it's, uh, in my mind, meant to solve Facebook's content moderation problem, not the content moderation problem. Uh, re really, I think the uh, paper is pretty clever. Uh, what it's doing is shifting the burden to Congress and regulators saying, hey, this is impossible. Give us standards that we'll live by and we'll live by the standards that you create so it's your mess. Or Facebook knows that if Congress does do something, that it's going to harm Facebook's competitors more than Facebook itself. So I think it's very clever on Facebook's part, but it's not really intended to uh, improve uh, the status quo with the information ecosystem. Well, it's, it is fair that, uh, to say that uh, Facebook is taking abuse for making decisions that it, it didn't really want to make, uh, and it would be delighted to have somebody lift that responsibility off its shoulders. Uh, uh, but it, given the First Amendment, that isn't likely to happen. Yeah, so I, we, we've got this paired. We can look at um, what Facebook uh, has in their um, white paper, and we can also look at what uh, Twitter's been trying to do or it's been revealed and Twitter has since uh, confirmed that they're experimenting with new technologies and new tools for um, improving the quality of information on Twitter. I also have uh, uh, real qualms with uh, what Twitter is doing, but there's a stark difference. Facebook is, I think, trying to solve Facebook's problem, uh, and Twitter is trying to solve the a low quality of information on Twitter problem as a way to solve Twitter's problem. So two very different approaches. And I, I think Twitter's approach is uh, really very flawed, but at least they're trying to go to the core problem and not kick the can down the road. And, and what they've mostly done is tried to say, uh, uh, we're going to identify misinformation and then we're going to uh, attach labels to the stuff that we consider to be misinformation. So you cannot miss our disapproval of this particular speech. Yeah, and uh, not just we are going to try and do this, but they're going to use everyone's favorite thing, fact checkers. Uh, and then this is my criticism of uh, Twitter's approach and Facebook's approach for that matter. They're both really caught up in uh, 20th century styles of thinking about what these problems are, which is really frustrating because uh, the, these platforms and these networks have the potential to be doing some really innovative things. Uh, uh, Interestingly enough, uh, Matt Perot of um, uh, Facebook's former uh, director of uh, public policy, who's now directing a, a center at Duke, uh, he's come out with a couple of interesting ideas for uh, ways that Facebook could allow for, for instance, a retargeting of ads uh, as a way of improving the ability of users to counter misinformation. I've had a, uh, just last week, I went on a big Twitter rant 
uh, two weeks ago, I guess, uh, about uh, uh, some ways that Twitter could use uh, the behavior of people who retweet information in order to assess uh, the quality of information that was originally tweeted. There's some really interesting deep in the network style uh, things that these companies could be doing that's 21st century style thinking, but we're, we're just completely stuck in a uh, 20th century modality here. And Congress, of course, is stuck in a particularly ossified version of that. So the, the, the thing that Twitter is proposing to do that is a little more 21st century is uh, crowdsourcing the, the, the uh, checks on the accuracy of information. And then, of course, that's, that's just um, Twitter mobs by another name unless you have a mechanism for evaluating whether people in good faith uh, um, rejected the accuracy of a, a particular uh, story uh, and downgrading their future votes based on your assessment of the good faith uh, of their uh, original vote. That's a tricky thing to do. I'm not sure how they're going to pull that off. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say it's great that they're experimenting with this. It's great that they're starting to think about it. The fact checker, the crowdsourced fact checker approaches, they, they have real problems, but uh, I'm optimistic that they're trying to grapple with them. And Nick, uh, you, you uh, were quite um, accurate in saying to, uh, uh, to me uh, uh, offline that just because uh, conservatives feel uh, and in my view, quite, quite justifiably, that Silicon Valley hates them. There are forms of speech that Silicon Valley doesn't much like uh, that uh, we really should not be encouraging. Uh, uh, the anti-vaxxers, uh, and uh, uh, you pointed to another story that I thought was just appalling. Yes. Yeah, so the problem with content moderation and this was the biggest weakness at the uh, DOJ symposium, is the only experts who actually have experience on the front lines were in the audience, live tweeting, not up on stage. So you don't moderate at all. You get 8chan and white nationalist assassins. You moderate too lightly, you get uh, Reddit creep shots. You moderate too heavily, you get Stuart Baker going after you, thinking you should be sued for moderating too much. Um, and if you go with a community standards approach where an online subculture gets basically their own status, you get dead babies. So this example is the free birth com community that believes that doctors are bad and you shouldn't actually get proper prenatal care, and the last thing you should ever do is induce labor or go to a hospital. And the online communities of these groups on Facebook are very aggressive about enforcing these rules. And as a result, there are multiple stories, including this particular tragic one, of a pregnant woman, 55 weeks pregnant, who didn't seek medical care and gave birth to a stillborn baby. Yeah, I, it's it, it is a tragic story. I asked myself, what would we have made of that story fifteen years ago? Uh, uh, and fifteen years ago, it would have been, God, there are a lot of stupid people on the internet, uh, and uh, you really have to be careful who you fall in with and how seriously you listen to them. And it's on you. Uh, uh, now, because so much of this is moderated by these walled gardens like YouTube and uh, Facebook, uh, 
we blame them for everything bad. Uh, you know, it used to be a joke that uh, uh, people would say, wait, someone is wrong on the internet. I've got to stay up late and fix it. Now uh, there are people who think that's their job. Well, also remember in this case, you've got a lot of algorithmic funneling going on. So you're creating large groups that wouldn't have existed otherwise. Like the QAnon crazies these days are a significant dangerous force while a 15 years ago, they'd just be the occasional idiot putting a chemtrail poster up on a uh, lamppost. So something really has changed with these communication networks, allowing these global communities to form, form their um, their self groups and communicate within them. And do the platforms have a obligation to minimize some of the harms or not? Uh, personally, I think that 230 counts as a necessary evil because the alternative is basically Facebook and everybody getting sued into oblivion. Oh, wait, is that a bad thing? <laughs> That's what I was wondering. Yes. So I, this is a, I think it's fair to say that um, if you were a European who had viewed the, the, the internet with alarm, uh, and I, I once uh, – in 1997 or so, I was talking to an official in, in uh, French intelligence, and I said, you know, if you if you take this policy, uh, uh, you'll that'll be the end of the uh, internet in France. And he said, so what's the downside? Um, a, a, the Europeans have been skeptical about the, the free and open internet. For a long time, and they believe that the only with the regulating uh, authority of um, government uh, can it be t uh, properly uh, uh, brought within the bounds of civilized behavior. Uh, and we're all kind of catching up to them. I hate to say it, but uh, that seems to be what's going on. And naturally, as we catch up with them, they keep thinking of new ways to regulate technology. Uh, Amori. Uh, uh, there's, there, there's a new digital strategy in the new uh, European Commission. Uh, seems to be pretty wide-ranging. What is What are the takeaways from what they're talking about doing? Well, at a high level, and I don't usually agree with you, Stuart, on Europe bashing, but you know, Europe hasn't built a great digital economy. There are a few leading European digital companies, and they're proud of their regulation. And now it's increasingly targeted at the global players who Europe hasn't built. Um, it's a wide-ranging digital strategy. Some planks of it were announced by Ursula von der Leyen, the new um, president of the European Commission, last week. There will be a Digital Services Act later this year, which will specifically regulate platforms, European-wide le legislation. Uh, the two pieces that were specifically released last week were a data strategy and a white paper on AI. And they're both pretty vague. I mean, the, the data strategy seems to be about more competition law, some regulation of platforms, wants to make Europe a great place for, um, for data, uh, introduce some data spaces where lots of European data will be aggregated. But it, it's incredibly naive. There was one place where it says private sector data sharing has not taken off at sufficient scale. And I wonder... Where have they been looking? Uh, 
the, the AI white paper, um, you know, starts by saying the commission supports a regulatory and investment oriented approach. And of course, regulatory comes first. And it's got a laundry list of areas of AI they might want to regulate, which they're going to take comments on now and probably regulate um, some of them, uh, probably make Europe a less... Um, you know, an increasingly less hospitable place to do digital business. I voted remain in the Brexit vote, but I'm feeling a little bit happy to be offshore in the UK at the moment. Well, but this just means you don't get a vote because they will continue to impose it through the adequacy rules and and uh, uh, the uh, uh, requirement that if you if Britain wants to continue to have free trade arrangements, it's going to have to adopt all the regulatory requirements as well. Stuart, uh, Maury asked. What data have they been looking at? There's a fascinating thing to note in the AI report, which is the most recent data they cite is 2016. Oh, God. Back in 2016, they're saying, uh, well, the U.S. and China, they're getting ahead of us if there's a gap, but we still have a chance. And of course, today, uh, Europe is much, much further behind. The only European country with any real uh, AI research going on is the U.K. Um, So uh, it's pretty remarkable uh, I, you have to think that was uh, a deliberate choice. And, oh, uh, well, yeah. I mean, don't you think if 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 if, if the Euro- a European Commission official called you up as a private company and said, uh, "Are you using a lot of uh, private sector data?" To, uh, uh, you know, the answer is no, sir. No, we would never do that. So it's not a surprise that that's what the answer they got. Yeah, and on the uh, uh, private sector information sharing, I, I don't think that this is in the rest of our uh, news roundup today. Apologies if it is. Uh, I saw a, a study over the weekend about um, financial sector APIs and how uh, there's been a dramatic increase in the last couple of years um, with uh, 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 attackers trying to uh, use uh, APIs in order to compromise financial systems instead of uh, traditional uh, credential stuffing, trying to force brute force logins. Um, so there are real risks, there are real dangers to uh, forcing uh, private sector information sharing if you're not doing this in a thoughtful, careful way. And I have a hunch the European Union won't be doing it in a thoughtful, careful way. <laughs> a crucial, I mean, they've got it wrong both ways, because if anybody looks around at the, you know, at the digital sector right now, they see private sector data sharing taking off. The Europeans aren't happy that uh, the platforms have control over personal data. But besides that, the business models are taking off. Uh, but I agree with Gus on the flip side that it, they'll they'll get it wrong both ways if they don't regulate it properly. Well, so it, it, Maury, uh, Elon Musk is saying that AI ought to be regulated everywhere anyway. Now, I don't think he's worried about uh, personal data so much as uh, AI achieving uh, you know sentience and starting to uh, turn us all into paper clips uh, um, but there is a lot of talk about regulating AI um, uh, particularly now when you get very concrete machine learning and the kinds of uh, uh, sets of information that are used to carry out that machine learning yeah, I mean, well, Elon is talking about something very different. He's talking about, um, as you said, artificial um, general intelligence, which he's scared will take over the world. But that said, it's a very different set of concerns. What Europe is talking about is regulating platforms, regulating ordinary business. Elon Musk is talking about 
specific regulation of things that could lead to artificial general intelligence. And we probably do need some form of AI regulation, just like we you know, have some standards about uh, how you use recombinant DNA and things like that. So the, 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 the press campaigns against AI, uh, well, we've talked a lot about uh, the campaign against facial recognition, but the other uh, campaign that we're getting from uh, um, newspaper uh, and media sources is looking at criminal justice uh, algorithms and machine learning that are designed to provide some uh, discipline on you know who gets bail and who doesn't, uh, uh, how long their sentences are, um, and from saying all of uh, the American justice system is race- racist, so we need artificial intelligence to uh, uh, cure that. Um, the narrative has now become all of that bias has infested the algorithms, so we should get rid of them. And that is something that is actually a pretty reasonable statement. So what has happened is the machine learning for trying to make these bail decisions, et cetera, was trained on um, the previous decisions and strip out the overt racial identifiers. But there are so many secondary identifiers that machine learning is really good at picking up on. So you're basically just calculating the same outcome, just putting in the disguise of the computer says it instead of the judge says it. Well, you know, this, uh, there's a, a whole topic to be explored here. Uh, you're assuming uh, a racial bias in the system. Uh, but, you know, there, there isn't any doubt that uh, the, uh, in many minority communities, crime rates are higher. Uh, and you can argue, oh, maybe it's not quite as, as much higher as you think because the police are more likely to be in high crime neighborhoods. But the, the, the fact remains, that there are more crimes against minorities and committed by minorities uh, in the U.S. Uh, than by majority populations, uh, and to say that maybe maybe somewhere there's racism somewhere in the basis, you could say, well, you know, people end up with bad educations, etc. But if your system is just designed to make sure that you're not putting on the street people who are going to commit crimes again, then that's a that's a sad social commentary, but it really is not something that should be treated as a bias that discredits a decision that uh, uh, certain minority groups are going to end up uh, getting bail less often than majority groups. Well, Stuart, that is the essential debate. You know, some people say the system was, as you had just had, the system was working okay. Uh, it didn't need this correction. People on the left um, will argue, tend to argue what Nick pointed out, that it's just bias in the data. Um, I, the, I think it, it hasn't been solved. But one thing which is important, which is what you pointed out, is the algorithms have not fixed it. Um, the algorithms the algorithms have not changed the situation. So let me, let, me, really, let, me, really let, me push, let me push back on that, too. If what you want to do is to eliminate some of the outliers... That uh, that might be motivated by 
actual racial animus uh, uh, than using machine learning to bring everything closer to the mean uh, has some value. Uh, uh, and what we're hearing is an ideological objection that they just don't like the mean. Uh, I don't see how you fix that except by putting uh, racial quotas at every turn in your machine learning system, which I, I think is going to turn out to be much worse. Well, if there is some bias in the data, it may be that the mean is still wrong. But I think you have a good point, Stuart, that you know more consistency has value, and that uh, the AI algorithms have a a real chance to push, uh, you know, to improve that. So my 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 takeaway from this is that when we see these well-meaning statements uh, about how AI always are our ethical standards, our legal standards have to say no bias in AI, that we are kind of a half step away from imposing all of these quotas because that's the only way you can fix AI bias when you find it of this kind. Uh, uh, it's either that or throw it out entirely. Uh, well, I don't think either of those is the right answer. In some ways, the throw it out might be at least something that isn't something to discount. That I have a quip that uh, machine learning is a great way to train a computer to be a racist asshole, and some people seem to like it that way. And the problem is, is it's really hard to detect between bias in the data going to inadvertent or, yeah, there's bias in the data and the people running the system are happy with the result. It's a really hard question to even say which one of those it is. Well, if you start out assuming that everybody in the system is racist, uh, it's easy to come to the uh, conclusion that they like it that way. Uh, I don't. I don't think that is the intent of the system. But uh, okay, let's uh, uh, let's move on to two other stories. Uh, we uh, uh, talked a lot about uh, uh, the possibility of gaming content moderation, uh, and in an odd way, this new um, effort to, to extort money from people by threatening to crowdsource uh, accusations uh, or uh, fraudulent clicks on your ads is, a, is another kind of illustration of how systems that are designed with good goals can be misused in ways uh, that uh, uh, produce the opposite of what's intended. Uh, Nick, what's, the, uh, what's this Google ban uh, uh, on ads ransomware uh, attack uh, that we're hearing about? Yeah, nice website. It would be a pity if something happened to it. Basically, it's send email going, I have a botnet. I can conduct click fraud on your website so that Google thinks that you're trying to rip Google off and therefore bans your account. Pay, pay up and I won't do this. So it's a combination of both using an anti-abuse mechanism against somebody and, oh, well, my every favorite cryptocurrency, because that's the only way you can get paid when you do extortion these days. So this is it basically then they, they, they engage in fraud that is so obvious that uh, forces Google to um, throw your site out of their ad system, uh, which can be enormously uh, um, uh, hard on your revenue. Uh, and uh, it's easier to pay than to have that happen. Does that really happen? I, I, there, was, there was some suggestion by Google that uh, they think there are tools for counteracting this kind of bot ransom uh, are good enough that it doesn't happen very often. Well, 
We don't know because Google is famously opaque on such things. Actually getting good data on click fraud itself is a hard research problem. And Google has every incentive to say that. So we don't know whether Google's being honest or not. And it doesn't actually matter from the attacker's viewpoint. If you send out 10 million spams and you get 10 responses paying you a Bitcoin, you win. Yeah, you find you find the people for whom it is unthinkable to have these uh, uh, have Google take you off the system, uh, uh, and you'll pay to to make sure that doesn't happen. Even if you think, oh, it's only a fifty percent chance that they can get away with that, you say, I will pay them because I can't live with a fifty percent chance. Uh, and you only have to find a few people, and they're not even suckers. It's just the the uniquely sensitive folks uh, and you can make money, uh, which is great because you don't even have to commit any crimes. You just have to say, um, uh, pay me and I won't commit a crime. Well, that is a crime too. Just ask Michael Avenatti. Okay. Yeah, you're right. That is, that's, that's extortion. You're right. All right. Um, we, we shouldn't uh, close the uh, uh, segment without uh, Ozzy encryption news. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, uh, there seems to be an effort to revise the Australian encryption law, which uh, uh, took on a lot of uh, uh, water. Uh, It's the most forward, it's the most aggressive effort to control uh, uh, commercial encryption, Uh, not quite requiring a backdoor, but you know, snugging right up to that uh, possibility. Uh, Why is it that uh, the Department of Home Affairs is taking comments on how to uh, cut back on its uh, uh, law? Well, I, I, it's the continued taking on water. You know, people are criticizing the, the new TOLA Act, uh, I think from not that new, about a year and a half old at this point, allows technical capability notices, including decryption capability. So unlike Kalea in the U.S., where you just have to follow public standards, the government gets to issue notices on lawful intercept capability, which is also the case in the U.K., by the way. And... There's one of the things that they can uh, give notices of is decryption capability, um, which if it's feasible to do that. uh, And so the question is, you know, how far do you have to go to allow decryption capability? And the government, um, basically, there's been an an ask that judicial approval be required before before one of these notices be approved. And the government has said that isn't necessary. Uh, approval by the Attorney General and the Minister for Communications is sufficient, um, and it doesn't appear that there's going to be a change. Okay, so this, this is these are, these are critics who got uh, their day in court, and of course the press amplifies their criticisms, but doesn't look like it'll change anything. Um, okay, uh, let's do some quick stories. Uh, um, Gus, a bunch of ISPs sued Maine, claiming that the web privacy law there violated their free speech rights. Free speech and ISP and privacy, those are not words I often see together. Oh, so th- this is a potentially really important um, uh, a bit of news. Uh, following uh, the Congressional Real Review Act rescission of the FCC's Obama-era privacy rules, a number of states have uh, uh, been adopting ISP privacy laws, um, and a bunch of industry groups uh, are challenging this one, both on uh, First Amendment and preemption grounds. Um, and I, I could talk for hours about either the First Amendment or the preemption side uh, of this. Uh, 
the basic First Amendment argument is, hey, you're targeting uh, uh, ISPs. You're regulating our speech differently than uh, any other network carrier or uh, than the rest of the Internet ecosystem. Uh, strict scrutiny, you uh, uh, content-based speech regulation, all of that stuff. And I, I think if this hypothetically were to get up to the Supreme Court, the current court has been really shaking up a lot of the uh, First Amendment uh, uh, landscape. And I, I think that those uh, uh, arguments have uh, uh, some likely success there. But I don't think that they'll get there because I think uh, the uh, law will very likely be struck down on preemption grounds. And the thing to watch for here is how that could affect other privacy-like laws, think CCPA. So uh, th this is a uh, challenge that really could touch on a whole lot of issues that uh, most folks aren't really paying attention to right now. Yeah, I, I noticed that Justice Kavanaugh, when he was a Judge Kavanaugh, uh, uh, gave a lot of attention to ISP free speech rights in the context of uh, net neutrality. So uh, uh, the, the people who are attacking Maine's law have at least one friend on the court, is my guess. Yeah, and um, we, we should also be uh, keeping an eye on the um, – uh, appeal of the Fourth Amendment uh, TCPA case, um, which is going to be heard by the Supreme Court this term. And I, I think that the TCPA could be facing a, a bad day in court on First Amendment grounds. Wow. All right. Uh, speaking of bad days, uh, uh, the effort to anonymize or just to quote unquote anonymize data about credit card uh, uh, purchases so that it can be used uh, uh, by a variety of other uh, uh, uh advertisers and the like uh, has run into Nick Weaver. Uh, uh, Nick, what's the, uh, what, what, what's the problem here? So the problem is, is this is not anonymization. This is pseudo-anonymization done badly. So it's take Stuart Baker's credit card records, strip out the name Stuart Baker and a couple other comment fields and the like, and then sell that in bulk along with everybody else's. The problem is, is because you've replaced Stuart Baker with Anon whatever consistently, all it takes is one piece of information and I've now de-anonymized your records in particular. And so this is not actually removing personally identifiable information. It's just kind of obscuring it a little. Well, it's making it, it, it's making it unlikely that people can re-identify except by making a conscious effort to re-identify but it's you're, you're absolutely right there's there's nothing that prevents people who have bought this from doing that if they want to and i guess the argument is well we, we don't want to why would we do that yeah and that doesn't make sense because it depends on who you sell to what they want to do with that and also selling onward and stuff like that that to call this anonymous is effectively a lie. It's pseudonymous and it's designed in such a way that you get the most utility by breaking it. You could have called it anonymous 15 years ago, but after the uh, AOL search debacle and the Netflix data set and all those, it's just fiction to call this anonymous. 
All right. Well, here's here's some good news. Uh, na- a U.S. natural gas operator went down for two days after being infected by ransomware. This is uh, uh, the the story is not quite uh, that they're breaking the industrial control systems, but uh, the ransomware did actually get to the operations uh, uh, system, not just the IT system, and caused uh, uh, a natural gas operational outage. I don't think it prevented the gas from being delivered, but uh, uh, it is an indication, as we're going to explore with Ben Buchanan, um, that uh, uh, attacks on uh, industrial control systems like the power grid are uh, clearly feasible and likely to have pretty dramatic effects. Uh, um, And Nick, uh, can you bring us up to date on uh, Julian Assange? I know you love to do that. Ah, yes. I love to watch Mr. Rapey's adventures in England. We're currently in the extradition hearing, and there's a few things of note. First of all, that uh, Rohrbacher, uh, our Moscow, now are under the bus, personally went to Assange with a deal of, hey, if you say the Russians weren't responsible for the Podesta emails, we can get you a pardon. Um, that's thing one. So Assange arguing that it's a political prosecution. And then the government arguing in court today that this is just a straightforward uh, computer crime. The problem is the superseding indictment is one computer crime and the rest are nearly indistinguishable from the New York Times. And that's got a lot of people worried and forcing people like me to defend that rapist idiot. So um, we aren't going to see the end of this. This is just the beginning of the court case. And uh, uh, even if Assange loses this, uh, he's going to take it on appeal. Um, And so uh, he's going to prolong this, I'm guessing, for years, uh, just following UK procedures. Uh, and uh, uh, and then, then he's going to tell us that uh, we're, we're to blame for keeping him locked up all this time. Yep, you got it. Not the fact that um, he fled to the embassy rather than face uh, sexual assault charges in Sweden and started all of this in the greatest example of the sunk cost fallacy ever recorded. So, Maury, um, uh, the Europeans uh, are not just talking about regulatory strategies. They are actually uh, um, talking about undoing the Google Fitbit uh, acquisition. How serious is that? Uh, This is the Data Protection Advisor, not the Competition Bureau. So I I don't know how seriously to take the, uh, uh, the warning that we're getting from the European Data Protection Advisor. Well, the the European Data Protection Board has said, quote, they're worried about accumulation of sensitive data by a major tech company. I, You know, that's kind of par for the course with the way the Europeans are thinking these days. And I, I think it's a serious concern. I think it could lead to various European um, actions to block the Google Fitbit, uh, including by competition regulators. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm sure Google is watching with great interest. All right. Okay. Well, that uh, that takes us to the end of the news roundup. Uh, let's turn to Ben Buchanan for our interview. 
All right. Our interview this week is with Ben Buchanan, uh, returning. Uh, uh, he's the first person, I believe, to have written two books during the uh, pendency of the podcast, and we've interviewed him about both. He's an assistant teaching uh, uh, professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. His new book is The Hacker in the State, Cyber Attacks and the New Normal of Geopolitics, uh, uh, coming out, uh, Ben, tomorrow? That's right, tomorrow. All right. Well, you've done a great job of, uh, of promoting this. Uh, uh, didn't you just have a uh, op-ed on these topics in the Washington Post? I'm very lucky that I write about timely things, so it's, it's better to be lucky than good on that front. All right. Well, why don't we start on uh, with the book? Uh, uh, what's the elevator pitch for this book? What what is it actually? Uh, 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 what is the book book's main thesis? I wanted to write about the things that I think cyber attacks are good for, and also write about the things that I think they're not good for. So each chapter in this book is a different way in which nations project power in cyberspace using cyber operations. And that's one chapter on fiber optic cable tapping, one chapter on encryption backdoors, a chapter on turning out the power in Ukraine, North Korean bank hacking. So I wanted to show uh, throughout the course of the book the wide range of, of what nations do with these, tape, with these capabilities and how they use it to achieve their ends in the geopolitical uh, competition. That's a that's a an excellent uh, approach. It's uh, I guess Aristotelian rather than Platonic. Start uh, starting with uh, what do we know people are doing rather than uh, what in theory could you do with this stuff. Uh, uh, and I think uh, that's particularly appropriate here because. Uh, no one knew what cyber was going to be good for when it first burst on the scene. And we're still kind of feeling our way, not just the U.S., but everybody. That's right. And as you know, you've had me before, and we, we can do theory. And a few years ago, we had no choice uh, but to do theory because there just wasn't that many cases out there in public. But my motivation here was recognizing that there's a lot of good stories we can now tell here in 2020 that we couldn't have told uh, not too long ago, either because they hadn't happened or because we didn't have rich sources of data on what actually took place. Well, so why don't we start with something that probably should have been in the news roundup, but we didn't have time for, right? Uh, and that is uh, um, the U.S. attribution of an attack on Georgia, uh, which came out in the last week. Uh, the, the attack was uh, uh, in the fall of last year, but uh, relatively recent, um, attributed to the Russians, defacement of websites, um, uh, uh, an effort to make it look I guess, uh, as though it was uh, uh, Mikhail Shashkarvili, uh, uh, who was uh, uh, at one point a very westernizing leader of uh, Georgia who was kicked out of the country, mostly because the Russians wanted him out. Uh, and uh, um, it, it's uh, odd because it feels a little like a throwback to less sophisticated cyber efforts in the past. Yeah, this is certainly less sophisticated than what we've seen other uh, Russian operations showcase, and whether that's the the blackouts in Ukraine and, and some of their other activities uh, to their neighbors and around the world, certainly there's no doubt Russia can do much more uh, than what they did in Georgia. And I think we've seen that pretty clearly over the years. So, what are they? What were they up to in Georgia? You know, it's it's unclear to, to me. I, I don't claim expertise on Georgian politics. This may have been uh, an attempt to to manipulate the the political process or or otherwise um, interfere with it. But it, it, what's striking, I think, is the U.S. decision to attribute this, and this fits into a broader pattern of U.S. attribution 
coming somewhat or largely after the fact. And I think the question, and, and I think your realpolitik instincts would, would share my view here, the question is, so what? what? What does it mean to have attributed this Russian activity? Will there be any consequences to it? Certainly, a far more sophisticated attack, not Petya, was attributed by the United States, the most damaging cyber attack in history, and yet there were no consequences to that attribution. So I'm skeptical that this is going to change much uh, in the course of international events. I, you know, there's an argument that we should stop doing these attributions if we can't do any retribution. Uh, it just contributes to a sense of impunity uh, and uh, uh, turns these uh, the the Russians into the equivalent of uh, 1930s uh, uh, bank robbers. Uh, they acquire this kind of glamour uh, from having done this and gotten away with it. One thing that that I think is very interesting is the United States and its allies are so worried about being attributed. We perceive that as a cost. Uh, that that you know it's very bad if that occurs. So we take big steps to try to avoid attribution and and stay below the radar. I wonder if we mirror image a little bit and, and figure that other adversaries fear attribution in the same way, and therefore we were imposing costs on them by doing it in this attribution campaign that's gone on for for five or six years. I think the evidence is pretty clear that uh, for the most part, uh, adversaries like Russia just don't fear being attributed in the same way we do. So I think that's new. I uh, I think that uh, uh, five or six years ago, the Russians were as worried about attribution as we were, and the Chinese weren't. They 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 weren't very good at this, and they just you know, as I once uh, uh, described, it kept uh, um, uh, driving their Chevys through the front door of the jeweler and grabbing stuff and running out uh, while uh, the Russians and the Americans were trying to uh, um, pull off a top happy uh, uh, jewel heist. Uh, I, and it turns out that uh, the value of sneaking in uh, compared to the value of just smash and grab wasn't that different. And the Russians have learned that lesson and now sort of like it, um, just as they sort of like it when people suspect that they're killing people in uh, the West. Uh, um, uh, they think it adds to their mystique and it doesn't really hurt them. Yeah, I, I think that fits the data very well. If you look at Russian activities basically since 2014, as you described, the 2015 blackout, the 2016 blackout, uh, of course, the 2016 election interference, 2017 not Petya, a host of other activities uh, in their neighboring countries. I think it's pretty clear they've embraced more open operations in, in a way that probably is bad for bad for everyone else. This book spends a lot of time on the uh, black energy attacks on Ukraine's grid, the two of them, 2015 and 2016, uh, you uh, seem to think that we really have not paid enough attention to the 2016 attack and what it might mean about the future of uh, cyber operations. Yeah, that's right. And uh, what's remarkable to me is we spent literally decades talking about the possibility of a, a cyber attack that causes a blackout and all that would all that would mean for the international uh, community. And yet in 2015 and 2016, we had two of these incidents, uh, both in December, both during very intense uh, media periods, one during the primary for, the, for president of the United States, one during the transition. And it really hasn't gotten a lot of scholarly or uh, or even policy attention. But the 2016 blackout in particular is very interesting because of the tool that they used. And, and simplifying just a bit here, the 2015 blackout, incredibly manual, incredibly uh, human-directed, step-by-step. The 2016 blackout shows ambitions of automation, uh, ambitions of scale that we haven't seen before. 
And I, I think that's something that needs a, a lot more attention. And that's a case where the technical evidence, which has taken a fair amount of time to emerge, tells a very interesting story about uh, what Russia was trying to do, even if that story is still ambiguous four years later. I mean, at the end of the day, they look alike from the outside. The you know, power went out for a while and then came back on, uh, uh, and it, it feels like uh, an outage that could have occurred because of a storm uh, and not much worse. But you suggest that the 2016 attack had the possibility, maybe it was intentionally withheld, maybe it was withheld by mistake, to just really wreck equipment in ways that would have made it a matter of months to bring back. Certainly, they, they may have been aspiring to do more, and they either held the capability back or I think they made some mistakes, so it probably is some combination of both. And there's really good evidence uh, by a, a company called Dragos, which is one of the leading industrial control systems companies that, that, that came out only uh, last summer in 2019 about this broader ambition of the 2016 attack. And I suggest that while we don't know for certain what the Russians were doing or what their motivations were, there definitely was more scalable potential uh, in the 2016 attack and more hints of scalable uh, attacks in the future from that operation than from the one that came a year prior. Don't we have reason to believe that crap like this is in our grid now, that, that the Russians have advanced uh, access to and maybe emplacement of some of this stuff in the U.S. grid? Yeah, one of the concepts I talk about in the book and, and try to introduce to the policy community that, that might not be aware of it is this idea of what we call operational preparation of the environment, which is to say that cyber attacks are not tomahawks, that you just build in your own territory, fire off at some coordinates, and they hit. Cyber attacks, particularly at the high end, require exploitation and understanding of the target environment well in advance uh, in order to build these tailored attack capabilities. And it does seem to me that, you know, certainly reports are that, that Russia has, has begun this activity uh, in the United States. At a minimum, it seems like one of the possible interpretations of the 2016 blackout in Ukraine was that it was a test of some capabilities that, that may be useful against the United States later. What's an appropriate response to discovering this stuff that they have been prep, prepping the battlefields and that they think the battlefield is Con Edison? This is this is a real challenge for policymakers because in there's at least the theoretical possibility that a nation would want to do this kind of preparation of the environment for deterrence purposes. They're not trying to use an offensive capability. They would just rather have the capability and not need it than need it and not have it. And of course, the challenge is that if everyone sees it this way, they're all prepping in, uh, attack capabilities in others' networks, and either everyone becomes comfortable with that, or you have the risk of escalation. And I'm not sure which world we're in. I, I certainly don't think we're comfortable with Russians in our systems. Uh, Ash Carter, when he was Secretary of Defense, said there's no reason they should be there, whatever their motivation. On the other hand, I don't think we're willing to go to the mat to kick them out. So there's, there's, as far as I can tell from the outside, not a terribly developed policy on this question. So um, I would have said the, the minimal response is to make sure we're in their network uh, with the capability of doing every bit as much harm as the maximum that black energy from 2016 could have done to the Ukrainians. We obviously don't know a lot about American activities against uh, Russian networks. It is worth noting there was a, 
uh, a leak, I believe it was to NBC News in 2016 at a, a period of, of high tension uh, between the U.S. and Russia, saying the U.S. was preparing these capabilities uh, to target the Russian grid. Who knows whether that leak was strategic or not? But uh, as a generalization, it's probably fair to say the United States is not seeing this one out. The United States plays offense, too, in cyberspace and wants to have these capabilities uh, ready to go should it ever need them. Yeah, although I think you're going to have a maybe not in this administration, but you could easily have a international uh, uh, armed conflict law uh, dispute about whether it is in fact uh, appropriate to just take down the Russian grid, uh, which will cause massive uh, uh, civilian suffering. Now we'll be suffering it too, so we might just say, "Hey, well, it sucks to be you too," but uh, that's not usually how uh, uh, the uh, international human rights lawyers look at these things. There is a a norm through the UN group of governmental experts saying that uh, you wouldn't attack critical infrastructure in peacetime. And I I think it's it's probably fair to say the United States would would live by that norm Um, in the world in which, as I think we're hypothesizing here, Russia has started taking out the power in American cities. It might not be a too much of a stretch to say that we're no longer in peacetime, that it's a serious activity and the U.S. would would want options to respond. But we just don't know how how policymakers are thinking about this. And and there certainly is not a lot of light um, beyond these significant Russian activities in 2015 and 2016 uh, on, on how this will play out, if it plays out at all. So let's let's uh, let's also talk about another actor who's uh, changed our expectations in this area, and this is the Iranians, who have gone from being patsies and victims to being what you might describe as um, wild card, uh, irresponsible actors. Uh, uh, they've introduced uh, uh, the uh, concept of wiping uh, the drives of really important critical infrastructure uh, uh, institutions. Uh, um, to send signals. Uh, they've been willing to take on the U.S. Um, and I wondered if you could give a, a feel for what you think the psychology and the strategy in Iran is with respect to cyber. Keith Alexander, who was a former director of the NSA and Cyber Command, said that of all the actors, the Iranians were the most emotional. I think that's a direct quote, which is to say it seems like they would they would be punching back out of anger sometimes and that there wasn't this coordinary, coordinated strategy of coercion that you sometimes saw from, from actors like North Korea or um, there wasn't the, the broader campaign that you sometimes saw uh, from actors like China, that they would just be responding to events uh, with cyber capabilities once they had built them. And I think it's it's probably pretty fair to say we, we've seen that. Uh, Iran is, of course, you know, suffered attacks in, in 2010, 2011, 2012, Stuxnet, and then a, a much lesser known attack uh, that I described called Wiper. Wiper is a, a fascinating case. Almost everyone's heard of Stuxnet. Almost no one's heard of Wiper. And it was a, a piece of malicious code likely uh, carried out by the United States and or Israel, but we don't have a clear attribution, that targeted strategic economic assets in Iran, like the National Iranian Oil Company. And what was so remarkable about Wiper is it would, it would as the name suggests, wipe the computers and, and take them offline, but it would take great pains to hide itself. So even to this day, we only have partial fragments of the Wiper files because it would destroy itself as it was uh, essentially destroying the Iranian computers. So it, it would look like there, there wasn't a cause of the attack, but the machines would stop functioning. Really incredibly uh, impressive technical work, especially for that era. And be, since then, 
Iran has basically said, well, fine, if that's going to happen to us, it's going to happen to the uh, the Saudis. It's going to happen to Sheldon Adelson. Uh, we're going to uh, start using this tactic on uh, uh, people we perceive as our enemies. That's right. Uh, as you said, they use it against Saudi Arabia. Pretty good evidence they use it against Qatar. Uh, they use it against Sheldon Adelson, who who made comments about using a nuclear weapon uh, in, in the Iranian desert. And this, this is their M.O., it's worth saying their attacks are not as sophisticated as Wiper. They're not as technically complex, but they certainly get the job done. I tell the story of the attack on Saudi Aramco, which wipes 35,000 computers on a, on a single August morning. And that's a, that's a powerful blow. And um, that's the story I used to, to illustrate uh, these capabilities. But Iran has continued to use them uh, in the years since 2012 and use them reasonably effectively. I, I guess I should should ask uh, while we're on this, what's different about the Chinese use of cyber? Uh, obviously, they steal this enormous amount of uh, uh, material from the Westerners' uh, governments and uh, intellectual property. Uh, how sophisticated are they, and uh, uh, do they have a broader strategy for the use of cyber? We have not seen a lot by way of Chinese attacks. There are a couple minor incidents, but I mostly tell the story of China as a story of ever-increasing intelligence ambitions. To use cyber as just a massive tool of espionage that goes both broad and deep. Obviously, you and your listeners are familiar with the economic espionage campaign that, that China has carried out against many American companies, American unions, uh, entities involved in trade disputes with China and international fora. I tell the story as well of some military espionage, in particular a Chinese program to go deep on American aviation and figure out how American uh, warplanes were being built and, and take those secrets back to China. And then I also tell the story, which the Department of Justice has, has recently confirmed is in fact China, of these broader hacks in which China is just gathering an enormous amount of information probably because they can. Uh, hacks including like the one against the Office of Personnel Management where they're pulling back uh, tens of millions of, of security clearance files. Hacks against the one like the one against Equifax where they're you know north of like 140 million uh, files on Americans. Of course, hacks against uh, health insurance companies as well. And U.S. intelligence officials say that that these kind of operations could be very valuable to China for a long-term counterintelligence perspective, whether that's identifying spies. Uh, undercover in Beijing or identifying who's working for the U.S. government and what their vulnerabilities are. It seems to me that the Chinese have uh, broad ambitions for gathering up a lot of valuable information using their cyber operations and ambitions that are largely unchecked. So I, I think it's fair to say that that frog, if we're the frog, is thoroughly boiled. I, uh, we, we all know that uh, the Chinese do this uh, after a brief uh, uh, spasm, because uh, we're as emotional as the Iranians, uh, um, of uh, uh, naming and shaming and prosecution and embarrassment for the Chinese. We've stopped. Well, we, st we still try to name and shame them, but uh, they're increasingly named but not shamed. Uh, and uh, um, there's no sign that they have dramatically uh, reduced their uh, cyber espionage now after taking a, 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 a month or two off. We're not 
doing anything serious about that. And meanwhile, other actors in cyberspace are doing things that are much worse and much more likely to uh, provoke an emotional reaction if they're actually used against us. Uh, um, where do you see this evolving? It, it, it looks to me like a permanent ratcheting up of the aggressiveness as, uh, frankly, um, uh, actors in cyberspace realize that the U.S. still hasn't reached a pain level where it's willing to do anything. Yeah, I think I think that's no doubt uh, true. Uh, and certainly something I think if you look at what Paul Nakasone, the new director at NSA, said in his confirmation hearings, our adversaries don't fear us. And and it seems like the, the trend that I observe in essentially writing a history of the last two decades of cyber operations is exactly one you describe, in which all the actors involved, but especially American adversaries, um, get more aggressive with their activities, and there's largely no response. Again, not Petya, the most destructive cyber attack in history, and the only public response we see from the United States essentially is a press release six months later saying, this was Russia, it was bad, but as best we can tell in public, there's no teeth to that. And I think that fits into a broader trend line of increasingly aggressive behavior. Uh, and where that where that goes is hard to say, but that trend line uh, over the last two decades is pretty unmistakable. Those are the facts, and they're not very pretty. Uh, uh, last question. If you were making policy, and sooner or later you will be, uh, um, a, what would you do different from what the U.S. has been doing the last uh, three years? Obviously, those of us in academia stay far away from policy, but I think what I would want to explore are options that are below the threshold of force to to be more aggressive in this space. Um, I tell the story in the book of an NSA operation that hacks back against China, that essentially performs this counterintelligence activity to inhibit Chinese action. It seems like U.S. Cyber Command uh, claims they have done that in 2018 with Russian election interference. So I, I would explore two two prongs. One is more aggressive counterintelligence and counter cyber activity to thwart adversary capabilities. And the second is trying to see what options the United States has to cause harm in this space and to suggest to adversaries that, hey, we've got cards to play too. Whether that's something like targeting the SORM system in Russia or the Great Firewall in China, you'd want to think these things through. But I think we need to generate more options than just sanctions and indictments. Well, that's for sure. Uh, although I, I can't say from the uh, public record uh, uh, on election interference where the thing that everybody talks about is that uh, we DDoSed the uh, Internet uh, uh, Research Agency or whatever it is, uh, the IRA, the guys who were sending out all that fake news. Uh, we DDoSed them for, oh, a good 36 hours uh, right around the election. I, you know, that is not an impressive display of American might in cyberspace uh, um, and not really likely to have a, a long-term impact. So I'm not sure we have found a way to use our cyber capabilities uh, to actually deter uh, future um, escalation. I'm with you there. I, I think sending text messages to Russian operatives may also not be effective. And that was one thing the United States did. My view probably is that the Russians have made their life choices and a text message is not going not gonna to change what they do for a living. One hopes that there is more behind the scenes that has not uh, come out in the Washington Post. But but if if the only thing the United States has done is, is DDoSing and texting, um, that probably will not be sufficient in 2020 when I expect we will see an emboldened Russia, um, largely because of a lack of consequences from what they've yeah. done before. 
DDoSing and texting uh, the uh, cyberspace deterrence tools of 15-year-olds. Uh, all right, Ben, thank you. This is a, it's, a, it's a good book. It's a great uh, set of stories. Uh, uh, I, 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 we didn't talk about much of your uh, political uh, and strategic and conflict theory stuff, which you uh, used to um, put a theoretical framework around some of these stories. Uh, we disagree about the framework that you put around it, so I, I, I figured it'd be more fun to talk about the stories. Uh, but they are great stories. Uh, that's uh, The Hacker in the State, Cyber Attacks, and the New Normal of Geopolitics. Ben, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. All right, and thanks to Maury Shank, Gus Horwitz, and Nick Weaver for joining me. This has been episode 301 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, please send us your uh, comments at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, we're taking a poll of our listeners to see whether we should be breaking up the interview and the news roundup so that the interviews can be downloaded separately in case you either do or don't want the, uh, uh, the interview in a particular week or you want to go back to it, uh, they're much more likely to be something that you'll want to go back to six months from now uh, compared to the news roundup. So uh, we're thinking about separating uh, the feeds for the interviews and the news roundup, and we're going to take a reader poll. So if you go to steptoe.com slash podcast poll, uh, we'll be taking votes there through the end of the month. Uh, so we'd love to hear from you. Uh, um, Please leave us ratings and reviews on all of the places you uh, subscribe to your podcast and join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.